The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Uh, you know, yesterday we had a great time. It was our annual Women's Spring Mini Conference. And um, I shared something yesterday that I just, I have to share again today. It's just, I like self-deprecating humor, and so this just fits perfectly, because Jen was telling me last Sunday here, our, uh, our granddaughter Amelia was sitting on her lap during the sermon, talking to her, and she, she says, Amelia, uh, Amelia's four, she says, Amelia, be quiet, you need to listen, listen to, hear, listen to Papa, he's preaching. A little time goes by and looks up at Jen and says, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> so it, this is my prayer for you, that you won't be stuck wondering what on earth is he talking about. And this is a tricky one. This is kind of a, that might be true. It might be tr- If it's true, then I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards if you have any questions about this. But uh, I pray that you will... Uh, no, uh, I guess another application, because, you know, I don't just tell cute stories like that for the sake of it being cute. You know, the application of that would be these people who are shouting Hosanna, they had no idea. So, well, let's pray. Our great God, at the start of Holy Week, as we think about Jesus going to the cross, we, we pause we pause and consider him on this Palm Sunday as the true king. A king not as the people expected. A king that, that I pray you will cause us to see as beautiful and unlike any other. We give you praise and thanksgiving for King Jesus. Thank you for this gathering, your church, the fellowship that is ours, that we might come together each week and sing of your great worth. We pray that you would give us a growing love and appreciation for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, last week, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we were in John chapter 19, and last week we, we considered Different cries of the people, right? The, the cries that we were considering last week were crucify him. Prior to some of these same people celebrating what, what we're considering this morning, this triumphal entry of Jesus, some of these same people were shouting, Hosanna. Deliver us. God, save us. This, this unique kind of king would triumph over our greatest enemy, and they rejected him because they wanted a man of war. And eventually, they cried out for Barabbas. Jesus was not the king that they were hoping for. And with misplaced desires, they rejected the anointed one, the Messiah, the one whom King David referred to in the psalm we're going to consider, um, David referred to him there. That's going to be our text this morning. Did you realize that Psalm 110, that the New Testament writers quote from this psalm more than any other passage in the Old Testament? 
You know, we don't really know Psalm 110, but it was really popular, obviously. Jesus uses this psalm to forcefully describe who he is and shuts up all of his challengers. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaches the first sermon and mentions this psalm. The writer of the book of Hebrews, describing redemptive history, goes to this psalm more than once. We think of Psalm 23 as as being popular, but the, the New Testament church probably thought of this as the most significant passage of Scripture. And... Um, And it's important for us to consider what the psalm has to say about the one that we celebrate this Palm Sunday because it describes Jesus the king, but a king that's not like any other king. Let's let's read Psalm 110. It's a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is... At your right hand, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is God's word. This, the person, the person in the psalm combines great and wonderful traits that are never, ever combined in a single person. David speaks about a king, and this king, is, this king is divine and human. He's not only a king, but a priest, showing strength and gentleness. And because of this, he's more beautiful to us than, than any other person, and we get a glimpse of the gospel. We'll look at, at just a couple of verses from this psalm, but I want to consider how Jesus quoted the first verse, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We read in Matthew 22 and Mark 12 about the same incident, an occasion when the religious leaders publicly confront Jesus Obviously, they didn't like Jesus. The people were enthralled with Jesus. They were following after Jesus, and this was a threat to the religious leaders. They didn't like him. They wanted to debate him. They wanted to ask him questions that seemed unanswerable, unanswerable if Jesus uh, wanted to please everyone, but... um, And people were on, on different sides of politics and theology, and that was part of the strategy of the religious leaders. They wanted to ask questions that might alienate at least a portion of his followers, or maybe he's going to say something stupid. That's their hope in asking questions like, you know, Jesus, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
careful with these political questions. Um, then we think about the, the situation they describe, you know, the woman who marries, uh, um, uh, her husband dies, and so it's custom in that day to marry the brothers because there's no children to give her offspring, and she goes through seven of them. And so they ask this theological question concerning the resurrection, uh, who's, who's her husband in heaven? Jesus, with each question, answers them perfectly. Unlike any other person, unlike any other teacher, he answers them perfectly. And finally, Jesus turns the tables and says, okay, I got a question for you. He gets in their face. And the question has to do with Psalm 110. Okay, now why does he go to Psalm 110? A little background. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies of a descendant of David. A a descendant of David who's going to be this great leader, a military, political, perhaps a king, who would deliver Israel. And this descendant of David who who was going to deliver Israel was called the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, um, anointed king. And at this, at this time, uh, being colonized by Rome, most of the Jews hoped for this Messiah to come and liberate them. This is what we think about each Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Their expectations are different. They want someone to liberate them from Rome. And most of the religious scholars of that day, they understood Psalm 110 was one of the many places in the Bible, the, the Old Testament, that pointed to this descendant of David who was going to be the Messiah, this one who would liberate them from their enemies. So with this in mind, Jesus says, let me ask you a question. And he quotes the first verse of this psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he looks at them and says, If this is David's son, and your scholars say that the Messiah would be David's son, why does David call him Lord? And they're stunned. They didn't know how to answer him. Nobody dared to ask him another question after this. And so we read those accounts in Matthew and Mark, and and we think, what just happened? What just happened there? Why did this confound them? Okay, here's what happened. This is a psalm of David, right? And so this is David speaking. And it starts off with David saying, The Lord says to my Lord. Notice the punctuation. In our English translations, they help us uh, with the word Lord. When, When... Typically in the English translation, when you see all caps, Lord, that's Yahweh. That's God's name. When you see the lowercase letters, that's Adonai. That's a title, master. Yahweh, the name of God. Adonai is a title or position of master. So David says, God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this raises two incredible questions. First, who is David talking about? 
And second, who is God talking about? This is amazing. First, David says that it's his Lord that God is speaking to. David's the king, so who would he call his Lord? It's not God, because God is the one talking to his Lord. So who is this Lord of David? The question Jesus asks them is, if David calls him Lord, how is he a son? And this baffled the religious leaders because they understand what Jesus is getting at. That David would never, 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 ever call one of his human descendants Lord. He's the king. He would have said son if this expected Messiah was only human. So first of all, who in the world is this person? Uh, Would this person be that David is, is calling my Lord? And secondly, who in the world could this person be that God would speak to him in this way? Look at what God says to him. God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He doesn't say sit at my feet, which would be appropriate if it's just a human. He says sit at my right hand. And we understand that in ancient times to sit at the right hand of the king was essentially to sit level with the king. It meant sharing the throne, a share in his ruling power. And we see this in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion... Your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. God sends forth this equally seated person's mighty scepter to rule. They're sharing the same rule. And so here's what Jesus is saying. You say that the Messiah is just a human being, a political ruler, and I'm asking you this, how could that be? Because this messianic psalm, this messianic prophecy, the language makes no sense unless the Messiah is more than a human being. Jesus is getting in their face and saying, how is he just a human being? David calls him Lord. He's he's not God the Father, and yet this person is level with God the Father. So stop looking for a Messiah who is only a man. He's divine also. And that's who I've been telling you that I am. And it's from, it's amazing, it's from their own scriptures that Jesus makes this argument. Showing them, he's showing them that their understanding of the Messiah, their expectations concerning him are wrong. They had no way to make sense of it from their own scriptures. And yet, instead of submitting to the word of God, they stick with their wrong expectations. They reject the Messiah, the very one pointing out himself in Psalm 110. And we understand Jesus saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you were not willing to see that it's me. I'm David's Lord. In a sense, Jesus was getting in their face and saying, 
I don't fit into your little box of being some political figure or military hero. I'm not just a man. I'm God. I'm not just David's son. I'm his Lord. I'm coming not to just conquer your political enemies, but the greatest enemy of all, sin and death. Jesus uses this psalm to get in their face. And then I think, what about us? It's so easy to think of those people and how blind they were, waving their palm branches and shouting Hosanna, and then with their wrong expectation, what about us? Could Jesus make the same point to us? That Christians today want Jesus to be their Jesus, meeting their expectations. But he doesn't exist to give us what we want. He's not some genie in a bottle that we use. He's not some get-rich-quick scheme. You know, you plant a little money, send a little money, you get tenfold back and get rich. He's not just a physical healer. He's not our social justice warrior or an example or a wise teacher only. He didn't come to be used as an argument for socialism or capitalism. And we should not use him as some weird leverage for whether or not we should be vaccinated or wear a mask. I just want to say, stop it. He's so much bigger than that. Why are we doing that? What would Jesus do, we ask? Well, he did it. If that's what Jesus... If that's what we do with Jesus, then he gets in our faces. And this psalm says, no. That's not the point. Don't try and use me. I'm not your illustration point. I'm the Savior. I'm the Messiah. I am the Son of God. We're so quick to point out the obvious about these people shouting Hosanna and how they stopped short of seeing what he really came to deliver them from. And yet, people do the same thing today. They try and use Jesus for their own agendas And we need to be careful not to do the same and miss the point of why he came. He came to glorify the Father, to show us who God is, that God is holy and just, so much so that Jesus came and died for us so that we might be forgiven because God is not only just, he is forgiven. He's merciful and forgiving. Jesus was a threat to them. And he's a threat to everyone who wants to control their own lives. If you want to be spiritual, but, you know, on your own terms, then what kind of king is he? He's one, is he one to be ignored? When he tells you to be a part of the body? When he tells you to submit to his commands? If he's less than the God-man, if he's, if he's more of an idea then people can be in charge of their own lives instead of submitting to him. The more personal Jesus is, the more accountable we realize we are. So is he getting into our face and saying, I'm not just some historic 
figure from the past. I'm David's Lord. I'm the living Messiah. I'm God. I'm the King. And I know you. So as we look at this psalm, we're seeing a person with these, with these combined traits that we don't see in any other person. First, this, this king is both divine and human. And Jesus went to this psalm to describe himself, sitting alongside, equal with God the Father, ruling with him. And yet, also this messianic descendant of David who is not just a son, but David's Lord. Second, this person, is, this person is both strong and weak. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord God is calling this same person a priest The same person he said in verse 2 is a king ruling with a scepter. He now says, you are a priest. And those who originally read this psalm were probably shocked at this one person being both king and priest. Because in Israel, kings were not priests. And priests were not kings. No one was allowed to do sacrifices in the temple or, or the tabernacle unless they were a Levite, unless they were a priest. It was illegal. You remember the story of Saul uh, waiting for Samuel, the priest, to come and make a sacrifice before they went to war? Did you ever wonder why, why was that such a big deal? Why was it such a big deal? Why was it such a terrible thing that, that King Saul got tired of waiting for Samuel. Samuel's not showing up, and so he goes ahead and he offers the sacrifice. And I just think, you know, you could look at that and think, well, at least he offered a sacrifice before going to war. He didn't just go to war. Why was it a big thing? Why was, and, you know, it's not just a lesson saying it's bad to be impatient, so we need to not be impatient like Saul. Let's be more patient. No, the reason it was so wrong is because Saul was a king, (laughs) He was a king, not a priest. Priests offer sacrifices, not kings. And it's not just, it's not just a technical difference. It's not simply that kings and priests have different job descriptions, different, different responsibilities. It's that their office, it's that their, their calling is completely different. The very mission of kings and priests are almost opposite. Kings represent God to the people. Priests represent the people to God. Kings were were coming from God to the people. Kings ruled in the place of God. Kings were, were figures of strength and judgment because kings enforced the law of God in Israel. And if you disobeyed the law of God, you're punished. So kings were these Figures of strength who brought judgment on people. But priests are exactly the opposite. The priesthood was was an office of sympathy and service. Priests offer sacrifices and prayers for the people. Priests made atonement and forgiveness for sins. 
Priests care for the poor and the sick. In the Old Testament, when you wanted to give money to the poor, you'd give it to the priests, and they would distribute it. Or think about Jesus when he, when he healed the, the leper. What did he tell the leper to do? Go and show yourself to the priest. Why? Well, they're kind of like a health officers. Kings were like police officers enforcing the law. And priests are more like social workers advocating for the people. And that make, makes me think, you know, maybe that's why being a police officer today is so difficult. People want them to be both, and nobody can be both. So the king was a figure of strength and of judgment. The priest is a figure of love and mercy and forgiveness. They're different. You can't have a king who is a priest or a priest who is a king. And yet, Understanding Jesus Christ, understanding the gospel has to do with understanding Jesus as equally, profoundly, deeply both king and priest. And we'll have a distorted view of him if he's more of a priest to us than a king or more a king to us than a priest. Jesus combines both. Something nobody else can combine, he combines. Jonathan Edwards had a, had a sermon with some long title, something along the lines of the diverse excellencies of Christ. And his conclusion was that Jesus combined characteristics that we would think could never be combined in one person. And because of this, he is overwhelmingly, he is deeply beautiful. Edwards said... Jesus combines infinite majesty and glory, yet the lowest humility and meekness. He combines infinite justice, yet boundless grace. He combines absolute sovereign dominion, yet perfect submission and obedience. He combines transcendent self-sufficiency, yet entire trust and reliance upon his Father. He is a lamb, and he is a lion. He's a priest. He's a king. He's a judge. He's the one who offers sacrifice for forgiveness of sin. All at once. Not one or the other. Both. And the more I think about it, don't you think this is why we see such different areas of emphasis within Christianity? you got liberal Christians who are more social, active-minded in their faith and hyper-conservative Christians that might be harsh and judgmental, priest, king, warped. Christians who prefer the Jesus who's at the party with sinners because they want to be at the party with sinners and the ones who prefer the Jesus who's turning over the tables We tend to use the Jesus that we like, that we're comfortable with. The king doing justice or the sympathetic high priest. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that we can't understand Jesus unless we understand that he is both a priest and a king. Think about when 
what we see in the Gospels, all the Gospels and the pictures that we get of Jesus, they're, they're, they're this, priest and king, strong and weak. On the one hand, Jesus is he's fearless and bold. We see how he is with the Pharisees and with the religious authorities. We see him in front of Pilate. We see 200 soldiers coming to arrest him, and he's, he's fearless and bold. He confronts the religious authorities, and he says the truth. He says that they're just a bunch of whitewashed tombs. They look clean on the outside, and they're full of dead men's bones. They're, they're hypocrites. They're serpents, blind guides. It's all true. He's fearless and bold, and we love that. We see him make a whip and drive the money changers out of the temple. But then he's also, he's tender and kind and sweet. Look at him going to the little dead girl, taking her by the hand, saying, Talatakumi. Honey, get up. It's time to get up. Look at him. He goes to the man who's deaf and mute. Takes him aside from the crowd. Touches him. Sighs. Looks up to heaven. Heals him. Goes to the tomb of Lazarus. Where he hears, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he weeps. Look at him (laughs) in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is so cool. Bringing his disciples in, letting them um, know that, you know, this (laughs) this is the hour of my greatest need. Basically, I've never been under so much pressure. I've never needed friends like I need you right now. Please, won't you just stay awake with me and pray? He goes and prays. He looks around and they're just all asleep. And what does he say? You lazy, good for... No, he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Basically, I know you meant well. It's amazing when we see Jesus all-powerful, speaking to the wind and the sea, bold and fearless when dealing with people who want to kill him, and yet, oh, so gracious and understanding and sweet. He's a king and a priest. He's beautiful. There's no one who brings these qualities together like Jesus. And we have a better understanding of Palm Sunday when we see this. This is what Palm Sunday is. Two centuries before this triumphal entry of Jesus, Simon Maccabeus restored independence to Judea. He rode into Jerusalem, and they waved palm branches at him and shouted, Hosanna, and they make him a king. 200 years later, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and he accepts the same kind of reception. The reception of a king with palm branches and shouts of Hosanna. And he accepts it because he is the king. He wouldn't have ridden in and accepted 
this praise if he weren't the king. But he didn't write in like Simon Maccabeus, did he? He wrote in on a little baby donkey, deliberately. One commentator noted, uh, victors in battle do not write into their capital city riding on asses. They come in on fearsome horses. But this king, Jesus, will not triumph through force of arms. Jesus is riding in triumphantly, but intentionally communicating he's a king who is strong and weak. And what he's communicating by this action is, I will triumph, I will save, but through weakness. Not from a throne, but from the cross. And the cross communicates a king's justice and a priest's offer of a sacrifice. The gospel is beautiful. It's the ultimate revelation of who God is. And the revelation of God, in the revelation of God, we see these seemingly contradictory traits. We see it in Jesus, but we see it in the very name of God. Uh, remember Moses. He wants to have this ultra, the ultimate spiritual experience. God, show me your glory. And God says, if I showed you my glory unfiltered, it'd kill you. I'll put you on a rock, cover you with my hand. All my goodness, that's the phrase used, all my goodness will pass before you. It's an interesting phrase. What does it mean that all my goodness passed before, before him? Well, it means that he declared his name. And here's his name from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is God's name. This is, the, this is his glory. This is his goodness. And do you see the apparent contradiction? God's self-revelation, his, his goodness, is that he's merciful, gracious, loving, and forgiving. And his goodness is also, and I won't let any sin go unpunished. Not one. You see the problem? God is saying, I'm a forgiving God who can't forgive. I'm a forgiving God who must punish every sin because I'm also a just God. This description of God is said to be his goodness having his goodness pass before Moses. Why can't God let any sin go unpunished? Because he's just so good. He's too good not to. A judge who winks at a crime and lets it go unpunished is not a good judge. A good judge always punishes wrongdoing. He always gives people what they deserve. And God cannot let any sin go unpunished because of his goodness. He's, he's too good not to. But God also says, 
I'm merciful. I'm, I'm gracious. I, I forgive sin and wickedness and rebellion. Why? Because he's so good. Seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? And if we're stuck and say, now if God is, is all good in terms of forgiveness, then he won't be all good in terms of justice. He'll, he'll have to let some sins go unpunished. And after all, he's going to forgive us, right? But on the other hand, if he's all good in terms of justice and punishes every single sin, then he won't be all good in terms of forgiveness and mercy. And if we reason like this, then we'd be saying that no God can be all good and we don't understand the gospel. Ah, but there's Jesus. Jesus who is king and priest and sacrifice. Moses wanted to see God's glory and Jesus is the glory of God. He is the personification of God. The word became flesh Jesus is the goodness of God. He is that king who is the priest. He is both strong and weak, riding into Jerusalem in triumph and yet triumphing in weakness on a donkey headed to humiliation on a cross. Jesus is all of the goodness of God. God is all good in terms of justice, because God punishes every single sin. Those outside of Christ are punished because God is so good. He will not clear the guilty. He is not an unjust judge. And so the answer is Christ. If you're in Christ, covered in the rock, as it were, God is all good in justice because he punishes all of your sin in Christ. No sin goes unpunished because God is, he is so good. Oh, not only justice, but God is all good in terms of forgiveness. Because Jesus took the punishment that you deserve, God is able to show you his mercy and grace, his steadfast love and forgiveness. Incredible. This is our... This is our triumphant king, divine and human, king and priest, strong and weak, and God's goodness passes before us in this person of Jesus, our Messiah. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for showing us your glory in the person of Jesus. Your glory is your goodness, and Jesus shows us how this is true. Lord, cause us to to see and admire him, to love and follow him, to obey him, and to see him as our sympathetic high priest. Lord, prepare our hearts this week as we consider the cross of Christ and, and look forward to Look forward to celebrate our greatest, our surest hope of all next Sunday. We pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen.